The next speaker, Dr. Rosen, graduated cum laude from University of Michigan Medical School. He studied internal medicine at the University of Alabama and dermatology at Baylor College of Medicine. He is currently a professor of dermatology at Baylor and chief of dermatology services at Houston VA Medical Center. He is a past president of the Houston Dermatological Society, prior chairman of the dermatology section of the Southern Medical Association, and past vice president of the Texas Dermatological Society. In 2011, he completed a four-year term on the board of directors of the AAD. He is on the ed editorial board of many journals, uh, including CUTIS, International journal, journal of Dermatology, Skin Therapy Letter, and an Associate Editor of Dermatology Online Journal. Please help me in welcoming Dr. Rosen. So it's the usual. I always feel like the Rodney Dangerfield of dermatology. Dr. Wallace is going off to Mexico City to speak with the World Health Organization, and I'm leaving here to go to Cleveland. <laughs> Cleveland in November. What a wonderful task. So I'm going to talk about infectious diseases. Um, this has really been my passion even back in my internal medicine days, and it certainly applies to dermatology. And I'm going to try and give you an update. It's really a potpourri of things. I'm going to include some bacteria, some fungi, parasites, a little bit of everything. And I, for the most part, I've really tried to keep things in here that are relatively current or that aren't well known. So I'm not going to talk about the incubation period of this, is that, or talk about drug doses that you all know or you can look up pretty easily. We're going to try and keep this uh, current. Now, this is my conflict of interest slide. It's, it really maybe says something about me because Graceway is bankrupt. They just declared bankruptcy, and it's like an open bidding war for the scraps. Um, and Pharmaderm was part of Nycomed, which was just bought out by Fujira. So none of the drug companies I work for survive. <laughs> Anyhow, I'm going to try and give you 15 pearls in 60 minutes. It'll actually be a little more than 15 pearls, but that's where I started, and I just didn't want to make it 16 or 17 pearls. So. This is my only soapbox. The rest of it's all going to be very educational. I worry about this. I literally sit and think about it. Not every minute of every day, but it does bother me. Because at the turn of the century, 1900, the leading cause of death was infectious diseases. And we've become, I think, rather complacent about our ability to handle them. There was actually an article in Time Magazine back in the 1960s, and they said, by the year 1980, there'll be no infections that we haven't conquered. And we know that's not true, in fact, far to the, the, the opposite. And what I worry most about is the pre-World War II era when we had no antibiotics. Remember, bacteria have had billions, 3.5 billion years to evolve. And while they're small, they're very cunning. And if we lose our ability to kill them, infectious diseases will again be the number one cause of death for humanity. And one of the things you can do to save humanity is to think about your antibiotic use for things like acne and rosacea. If you don't think 
that antibiotic resistance is a real problem, I would refer you to this article. It's a couple years old, but reading this will keep you up with nightmares. It is a rendition of what is going on as of several years ago. For example, in New York City, there are strains now, multi-drug resistant Klebsiella. Not only multi-drug resistant, pan-resistant. There is no antibiotic known to mankind that kills them. And people who get infected with this bug, most of the time it's immunocompromised, immunosuppressed, older individuals, most of the time it's pneumonia, they die because there is nothing we can do. And you know bacteria speak to one another and they copulate with one another and they spread the wealth, whether it's plasmids or whether it's bits and pieces of DNA. Antibacterial resistance can spread not just to the progeny of a given organism, but to similar organisms and even dissimilar organisms in the same host. And so this is a major problem. And when we talk about acne, it's not just the resistance to antibiotics of P. acnes, which makes acne more difficult to treat. I'm old enough to remember a day when erythromycin was a wonderful drug for acne. It isn't anymore, under any circumstances, oral or topical, because there's so much resistance. But it's not just that. It's when you give antibiotics at full dosage, you are also changing the flora of the mouth. You're changing the flora of the gut, and you may be changing the skin flora by promoting P. acnes resistance, which you can then pass that resistance on to other organisms that might be on the skin, like Staph aureus. So I made this point about not giving antibiotics wholesale to acne at the South Beach Derm Symposium last year. And this appeared in Skin and Allergy News. It was almost like I had been in the National Enquirer. I got more mail and email including two death threats about how could I suggest we shouldn't use antibiotics to treat acne. I was being irresponsible. I submit to you I'm being responsible. And I didn't really mean don't ever use an antibiotic to treat acne or rosacea. What I meant is be circumspect about it. If you're going to use antibiotics, use them short term and have your other alternative therapies already started or in mind and keep the patients on antibiotics the shortest period of time humanly possible to obtain control. Why? Antibiotics have side effects. It turns out in some studies, benzoyl peroxide does just as well as an oral antibiotic. There's already lots of antibiotic resistance in P. acnes worldwide. The patterns differ from country to country, but eventually microbes travel across borders. They don't know country from country. And we can, by our administration, we are not the biggest prescribers of antibiotics. Actually, it's the pediatricians. But by our use of antibiotics both on and off-label, largely off-label, for a whole host of things, as well as on-label, we can worsen this problem. And there are alternatives, and you're familiar with these. I just submit to you, perhaps we should use more of them and less antibiotics. Various forms of phototherapy, thermotherapy, heat therapy, 
use of hormonal manipulations in antiandrogens like spironolactone, sub-antimicrobial dose doxycycline, which in 18 to 24-month studies doesn't change the flora of the mouth or the gut because it's such a low dose, it never selects out for resistant organisms. It acts as an anti-inflammatory agent. Use of dapsone, isotretinone, I know it comes with its baggage, and then zinc with or without nicotinamide. In some countries in Scandinavia, they use zinc the way we use antibiotics, first-line therapy. And if you're careful about dosing and make sure that people have food in their stomach to protect them from zinc-induced gastritis, it's a very safe drug. It actually boosts the immunity and enhances wound healing. There are all sorts of options. I've given you some. You're familiar with these, if not intimately, at least peripherally. Think about using more of them and less antibiotics. And when you do use antibiotics, try and be very circumspect. I know it's just one of us in an office, but if all of us do it collectively, and our colleagues in other specialties do it, then we can regain control. There have been studies done in controlled environments, like a hospital, where if you cycle out certain antibiotics, the resistance pattern changes, and all of a sudden the organisms become sensitive again. And we can do that as a profession. We can do our part, as opposed to ignoring the problem. Enough said. There are now guidelines of care for MRSA. This is 2009. So I think the pattern has changed a tad, although the same map at 2007 wasn't much different. The darker the color, the darker the red, the higher the prevalence of methicillin-resistant staph infections. So you see there, sort of in the deep south, extending up to the middle south, and then across the Gulf Coast states and up through some of the Rocky Mountain states least prevalent on the two coasts. You can see MRSA anywhere. Years ago, people were saying, I never saw MRSA in my practice. What are you talking about? And now if you haven't seen it, I guarantee you will, sooner or later. And these are just a few of my MRSA patients. Some of them are very interesting. The gentleman with the lesion on his neck there. Remember him, because I'm going to talk about him in a little bit. The lady with the big MRSA boil down here was a lupus patient on steroids and, and Imuran bad combination. The other three people were totally normal and healthy. So MRSA doesn't have to just infect or affect patients who are not normal, normal hosts, especially community-acquired MRSA, which is most common actually in young people who are participants in athletics, who don't always have the best hygiene, who get small cuts and abrasions, which are portals of entry. So how do we diagnose MRSA? We send off some pus for culture. There's a new diagnostic test, and it's already available. It's limited, as I stand here today, to blood cultures, but its approval for skin and soft tissue infections is pending. So in the next some small number of months, it'll be approved. And basically, it's an interesting test because you take your specimen and you incubate it with bacteriophages that are specific for Staph aureus. And if there's Staph aureus there, the bacteriophages multiply because now they have their host. And then the test ultimately is to look for bacteriophage antigen. So you do it twice in two different tubes. In one tube, you add methicillin. In one tube, you add nothing. So if there's Staph there, 
and it's methicillin sensitive, one tube will show lots of bacteriophage antigen, the other tube won't. If it's methicillin resistant, the tube that methicillin was added to will still grow lots of organisms and lots of bacteriophage, and both will be positive. And the answer is available in five hours. Not overnight, not two days, five hours. And look at the sensitivity and specificity. It's very, very good. So you'll see this. It's called KeyPath. I have no financial interest. That's just the name of the test. I don't even know. It's not the company's name. I don't even know the name of the company. But that's the test. And it'll be a five-hour test. So you'll know if something's MRSA or MSSA or a staph at all. And this is how it looks. You just put the bacteria, you put your specimen, you put your bacteriophage in, you put methicillin or nothing in the two things, and then you find out by looking for the bacteriophage antigen whether it's positive or not. Fascinating little new test. These are the clinical treatment guidelines published earlier this year, and I just want to highlight a few of them. When you have a lesion that looks like a boil, Incision and drainage is the single most important thing you can do. It is way more important than if you give antibiotics or which antibiotics you give. But there are some instances where antibiotic administration is appropriate. Extremes of age, something that's difficult to drain. If there's already septic phlebitis, if the patient is immunocompromised or immunosuppressed or they feel sick and they're febrile. You have to know your own pattern of susceptibility in your own locale. Generally speaking, in the United States, clindamycin may be sufficient, but it should always be tested for inducible resistance. Generally speaking, with about a 10 to 15% resistance, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, Bactrim septa, is sufficient. Doxycycline and minocycline with about a 10 to 12% resistance, generally speaking, is sufficient. Linazolid we hold off on, aside from the fact that it's about $2,500 for a course, we hold off on as we try to hold that as a good oral alternative when everything else fails so you don't have to go to big bad IV drugs. I do quickly point out that in the new guidelines, the Infectious Disease Society of America says that the concomitant administration of ripampin is no longer indicated. What do you do if somebody has it and it keeps coming back? Recurrent MRSA. You talk to them about hygiene and not reusing personal items. You have to check their close personal contacts. Are they reservoirs of MRSA? Have they been having boils too? Do they need to be treated? If all that fails, then you try and decolonize them. Intranasal mupirocin, dilute bleach, bleach baths, generally a couple times a week for three months. And then, hopefully, it goes away. But what if it doesn't? The guy showed you with the boil by his neck kept having boils. And I was aware of some of the literature in the veterinary world about pets harboring methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. And they get something that's called a superficial pyoderma. It's not bad. The, the dogs and cats aren't sick. But they have a little bit of red, a little bit of peeling, and a little tiny bit of fur loss. It's not a total fur, complete blank area. And it can be due to Staph aureus, Staph intermedius, or Staph schlifferi. They're three different species. Staph aureus is one of them. And the Staph aureus in general domestic pets, dogs and cats, 
Don't ask me about llamas. I have no earthly idea. But dogs and cats, about a third of them are methicillin resistant. What happens? You come home from work, Muffy jumps up, you say, Muffy, I'm so glad to see you. Staff just passed. And there have actually been studies done, molecular studies, to show that the pet gave it to someone in the vet's office. The vet's they, they became carriers. The vet's office, whether it's the veterinarian or a vet tech, then examined the next animal, gave it to the animal, the animal went home and gave symptomatic MRSA to a new family. That's how it can be passed. So if you're having trouble, that's my message, if you're having trouble with recurring MRSA and your patient says, I don't use my towels more than once, you're already having me dunk myself in bleach, I've put mupirocin in my nose so much I can't breathe anymore, pets have the animal examined and write on a piece of paper for the vet, superficial pyoderma. They're generally not carriers. They generally have lesions. They're not terrible. They're not scratching at them. They're not symptomatic. But the vets can find it. And then when the animal's treated, generally in the US with clindamycin, you break the cycle. Mupirocin, that's another problem. We've been putting mupirocin up the nose for a long time, and now there's mupirocin resistance. In fact, in the U.S., as part of a global surveillance done a couple of years ago, almost 15% of methicillin-resistant staff are also resistant to mupirocin. So if you have someone who's having recurring problems and you've stuffed mupirocin up their nose a couple times, try stuffing something else up their nose, a little silvidine, a little ritapamulin, Altabax. It stings and burns. It's not really meant for mucosa, but it can be tolerated because they may have mupirocin-resistant organisms. Or you can send a culture from their, their nose and see whether it's mupirocin-resistant. Then you know for sure you have to do something. But that can be a problem in attempting to break the cycle. Are there new MRSA antibiotics? Well, we've all been taught cephalosporins don't work on staph, but actually they do. They work fine if they're fifth generation. There are two of them, ceftabiprol and ceftaroline. They work because they bind to the penicillin binding protein that generally resists all the other penicillin type drugs, but these fifth generation cephalosporins do. They bind to that, they prevent the cross-linking of peptidoglycan, the cell wall doesn't work, and so the organism can't keep their guts inside of them, and so they're subject to osmotic and other attacks from the environment. And the new cephalosporins show in vitro activity against all sorts of things, including completely and incomplete partial resistance of vancomycin staph, staph that are resistant to vancomycin, staph that are resistant to methicillin, both hospital and community acquired. So what's the status? Ceftabiprol was the first one. The studies were all done. It was sent up for approval to the FDA, and they rejected it. They said the study wasn't good enough. It was. There were protocol violations. So it's kind of circulating, but it is available in other countries. But ceftaroline was acceptable and was approved. It is now commercially available. It is an IV drug. We don't generally give a whole lot of IV drugs. But it's also like ceftriaxone, like rocephin, it is amenable to intramuscular injection. And so the company that owns it is developing it as an IM injection rather than an IV. So we may have, we all love cephalosporins because of their high degree of safety. So in the not too distant future, 
watch for, I don't know what the name will be, probably the same thing, for an intramuscular fifth-generation cephalus born from MRSA. So you'll have something in case, doxycycline, minocycline, they're allergic or it didn't work, or they're deadly allergic to sulfa drugs, or their particular strain will become resistant to clindamycin very rapidly, we'll have this. It's already available IV. Now, switching gears. Here's orolabial herpes. How many of you are familiar with acyclovir plus hydrocortisone? Not too many. So this has been around since 2009, but the company that owns it didn't do a very good job of telling us it existed. And what's this designed to do? It's designed to augment the antiviral effects of acyclovir. It's a goop, it's a topical cream, with an anti-inflammatory, hydrocortisone, because the inflammation is probably responsible for at least some of the signs and symptoms of orolabial herpes. The concern would be, well, I'm putting a steroid on an infection, and isn't this going to make matters worse, and isn't it going to lead to resistance? And the answer is no, it doesn't, none of those things. So here's how it's used. This is a prescription drug. It's applied five times a day. Okay, that's a lot, but if you got a big bad blister on your lip and you got a hot date in four days, you're gonna put your stuff on. Five times a day for five days. It works best when it's applied even before there's a lesion. Prodrome, burning, stinging, tingling, you know, you know it's coming. And what it does is it's capable, if you compare it to its vehicle, or even to acyclovir itself, without the hydrocortisone, it's actually better. Reduces the likelihood of a true ulceration to develop, reduces the time to heal, reduces the lesion size, reduces the pain by a day, compared to doing nothing. Doesn't seem like much, but a day is a day less. No mutations. And I thought, for fairness sake, I know, please don't criticize me for not being scientifically rigorous, because these data are not all from head-to-head -head studies. None of them are. Well, the acyclovir hydrocortisone was compared to acyclovir, but they're not all head-to-head. -head. But this gives you kind of a feel for how good the topical agents are for orolabial herpes. In terms of time to resolution, about the best you can get is a couple days, the day and a half, sort of on average to even less than that. Decreasing pain, the best you can get is actually with this combination, a full day less of pain. It's better than everything else out there. And notice that acyclovir by itself, statistically, didn't even reduce the duration of pain, although it did decrease the time to resolution. So here are all your topical agents that are currently available. Um, none of them is like right home and and make a big deal about it. But this new one I found to be very helpful, particularly in people who are very symptomatic. But what would really be best? If you have someone who's having cold sores eight, nine, 10 times a year, almost every month, and they just hate the way they look, and they swell, and they bubble, and they blister, and they're miserable, and you're feeding them pills, or having them put on goop, or doing both, and they keep saying, but my whip is still happening. This is an absolutely fascinating study. What these authors did is they took folks who were having a lot of outbreaks, eight to 10 a year, and while they had an outbreak, they put 5% imiquimod, Aldara, on a site on the abdomen. 
not on the lesion, because there have been studies where that was done, and while it was helpful, it really doesn't do well. I've tried it on a few of my patients, and you don't want to do it because their lip really gets horrible. So what they did is they put it elsewhere. While an acute outbreak was present, under occlusion, every night, washed off in the morning, then reapplied, and they did it for three weeks. What's the rationale? The rationale is while there's an outbreak, there's antigen. So I'm going to make this person, their immune system, work better against that antigen. And what they did over the time that they used this, while they were doing it for three weeks, sure enough, if they had an outbreak, it went away very quickly and it wasn't too terribly bad symptomatically. But what was fascinating is they were followed for almost two years later, 21 months, and had no outbreaks. And this cohort of patients, on average, had 18 outbreaks in 21 months before this. So what in effect, and then they went back and said, okay, well, what's going on? Let's get some blood and see. And it turns out these people, after having done this, upregulated their immune system by putting it at a distant site while they had an active antigen present. They have persistence of increased T cells and increased interferon gamma that persists well after, months and months, almost two years later, from when they had the outbreak, and that's probably what's keeping them outbreak-free. So it put them in remission. Not forever, probably, but at least for the 21 months they did the study, every single person was like this. Okay, I don't expect it'll be perfect like that, to be honest with you. But, oh my God, you're struggling with a patient. You, I bet every one of you has at least one that's really bad. You feel sorry for them, you know, and suppressing oral labial HSV-1 is a lot harder than suppressing HSV-2 in the genital area. It's just harder. No matter which of the drugs you use or what dose, it's harder to suppress it consistently. This upregulates the person's immunity and maybe puts them in some protracted remission. So this is something to try. I'm bringing you new things that you can try tomorrow in the office. And I'm telling you, I'm waiting for my first one. I haven't done it yet. Antibiotic risks, you all know these risks. Overgrowth of gram-negative microbes, you're treating someone with something that wipes out everything else on their face, and all of a sudden they got a bunch of deep pustules and it's all gram-negatives. GI side effects, minocycline discoloring the skin, tetracycline derivatives causing pseudotumor cerebri, you all know all this. But this was an interesting, thought-provoking study including 94,000-plus acne patients. Five years of follow-up, two groups, those who got antibiotics, those who didn't. And between the two groups, pretty well matched for almost everything, age, sex, how bad their acne was, et cetera, et cetera. And it turns out the ones who got antibiotics were at increased risk for developing Crohn's disease if they got doxycycline or tetracycline increased risk compared to otherwise age-sex-matched, acne-type-matched controls who didn't get those antibiotics. Is this real? Is this a fairly compelling large study? It's not 94 patients. It's 94,487. So people say, well, after I show this, like, well, what do you do? I mean, do, do you worry about it? Of course I worry. I ask patients now. I've changed my way of operating a little bit. So you have 
a 16-year-old with really bad acne, you're thinking about putting them on doxycycline. I would say use light therapy and something else. Anyhow, but okay, you want to put them on doxycycline. Ask if they have a sibling who has Crohn's disease. Not ulcerative colitis. There's really no statistical risk. It's Crohn's disease. Ask if they have a sibling with Crohn's disease. Ask if mom or dad have Crohn's disease. And if they do, because the risk is increased with doxy and generic tetra, if you want to use antibiotics for three months to get them under control, I go to minocycline instead, because statistically that was not significant. Or think about something else. There's some papers that are using azithromycin for acne and rosacea for that matter. So think about inflammatory bowel disease in your patients you're going to put on antibiotics for acne and ask about a family history. There's a strong family correlation of inflammatory bowel disease. And this study, one of a kind, it's been criticized a little bit here and there, but it still is very, very interesting and makes me stop and think about it. Okay, STDs. Let's talk about epidemiology. STDs are not disappearing. You know, this is from the Middle Ages. This is from Egypt about 4,000 years ago. You see Memi has his hand on Sabu's breast. And Rodan, you know, <laughs> it's not going away anytime soon. The CDC published trends, new trends. Where are we with STDs? And the one that really hit home is that syphilis is at the highest it's been since 1995. And it went up 5% over the last year the full statistics are in. 2000 statistics are, 2010 statistics are not yet published. It's up again. So syphilis is a big problem. Other things about epidemiology, HSV2, seroprevalence hasn't changed very much. It's about one in five to a little less than one in five who are seropositive for HSV2. That means you have herpes. Can't tell when you got it, can't tell how often you're shedding virus, has nothing to do with how often you have overt outbreaks, but if you're seropositive for HSV2, and there have been studies conclusively showing this, you have herpes, and you may be contagious. You need to know it. But it turns out in the population as a whole, it stayed pretty stable over the last couple times it's been checked. I thought this was interesting. I just throw it in. Survey of 11,000 Americans over the age of 17. Weekly attendance at any religious service reduced the likelihood of being HSV2 seropositive. Okay. Uh, God's intervention? I don't know. Um, since you're from all over the country, I thought I'd show whether you need to worry too much about syphilis. I'm pretty proud of Houston. We're tied for ninth. But here are the hot spots for syphilis. Remember that about six years ago, Indianapolis was number one, number one in the country for syphilis, because there was a lady of the night who was infected with syphilis, who apparently had unprotected intercourse with a whole bunch of guys, and there was this huge, so it can pop up anywhere. But generally speaking, generally speaking, Louisiana is the most syphilitic state in the union, and has been for the last six years. Okay, your government paid for this study to show that if you drink to the point of being drunk, you're more likely to have unprotected sex, sex at an earlier age, and more sex partners. Okay. They paid to tell us that. Drugs. It turns out marijuana correlates with sexually transmitted disease because you're not entirely your normal self, I guess. This one's the important one, smoking. 
There have been studies for many years implicating smoking in the development of specific STDs, particularly genital warts and genital herpes. There's a reason for it. There's actually a derivative of nicotine. It's called cotein. It's absorbed through the buccal mucosa. It gets in the systemic circulation and then ends up in normal genital secretions. And it suppresses T cell function. So you are more likely to acquire, because you have less local immune response, herpes and genital warts if you smoke. This study was the best, though. It was a huge study, and they corrected for all other behaviors, and they actually quantified it. For each cigarette you smoke per day, you're at an increased risk of 0.6 pence of a percent of acquiring external genital warts than if you didn't smoke. So if you think smoking cessation is, it's not something we do routinely, right? But I see someone sitting there with a pack of camels in their pocket. I say, you know you're going to get genital warts all over your wee-wee if you don't give those things up. <laughs> and I've actually had people take their cigarettes and throw them out because they didn't care about emphysema or lung cancer, but they didn't want the wee-wee to be all full of bumps. <laughs> Older people, I work in a VA 60% of my time. I see a lot of older people, and my residents always bring me in to see genital lesions, and I say, did you get a sex history? No, he's 72. Whoa, Viagra, Levitra, Cialis, hello. People are having sex longer, and it turns out when they're older, they think, oh, I can't catch anything. What am I going to catch? I'm invincible. They don't use condoms, and it turns out that the use of erectile dysfunction drugs, it doesn't, it's not the drug, but it goes along with, I'm having unprotected sex for a lot longer than I used to. It turns out use of erectile dysfunction drugs increases your risk of acquiring an STD by a factor of three. So when you, let's say you're walking into the room and it's Mr. Jones and he's 72 and you glance real quick at his intake sheet and you see Viagra and his chief complaint is lesion in private area. STD, probably, because he's doing his Viagra. Okay, HIV. We kind of all forgot about HIV. You know, it used to be you'd see programs on it all the time, and we forgot. I just want to remind you, 50,000 new cases a year, every year in the United States, have been very stable. Interestingly enough, somewhere between 20 and 33% of those who are HIV positive, mostly younger people, don't even know it. So we have this passed along. The other thing is, HIV used to be a disease predominantly in gay men. Well, about half the cases still occur in that group. Where are the other half of the cases? Heterosexual women and heterosexual men. Sexual orientation doesn't matter. You can get HIV, period. Condoms, okay, so we all say, oh, you had STD, don't do it again, use condoms, everything will be fine. So here's kind of a summary of the how do condoms, how well do condoms work. And yes, they offer protection, but it's not 100%, except maybe for gonorrhea, but everything else, it's a little less than that. They don't exactly give statistics. Nobody really quite can. Because the only effective, totally effective condom is one you put on that covers your head down to your feet. Because this guy wore a condom, the condom stopped there. And what did he get north of the condom? Venereal warts. I just treated a patient with syphilis at the base of the penis. And he said, oh, it can't be. I, I wore a condom. 
Okay, it's right above where the condom would end. Did you know, did you know this person? No. Picked them up at a bar. Okay, what can I say? And condoms are definitely a problem. I can tell you that from personal experience. P.S. If you have a brother, a nephew, say between the ages of 26 and 32, debt-free, well-employed. My children, talk to me after the talk. Okay, STD guidelines. One of the new things in the STD guidelines, the only one I'm going to talk about, I, it, it, most of the rest of it doesn't apply to this, is scabies, right? You all know that scabies? So part of the new guidelines include ivermectin, 200 micrograms per kilo, once and then two weeks later. Keep in mind, that CDC recommendation is not backed up by an FDA approval. There sometimes is a disconnect between what the FDA approves and what the CDC recommends. And so they now recommend ivermectin right along with permethrin, first-line therapy for scabies. So if you like to do that, I actually do. Periodically, there's difficulties getting it because it's in short supply, because it's only approved for things like strongyloides and echinococcosis and stuff we don't ever treat, but it's never on the shelves. Why? Because people are giving it for scabies. They don't produce enough. But it's really a very effective drug, and the CDC is now on your side. You're not doing something that's weird and surreptitious. They recommend it as first-line therapy. Genital warts. Nice collection of pictures, don't you think? There's a vaccine, and the vaccine works, but there's bivalent and quadrivalent vaccines. So this is the quadrivalent vaccines, four years follow-up. So this protects against 6 and 11 for external genital warts and 16 and 18 for malignant neoplasms of the genitalia. And if you look four years later, this is in women, there's no long data for men yet, but if you look in, in this study for women, if you look four years after vaccination, what's the protection against diseases caused by the HVB types in the vaccine? Prevention's great, 99 to 100%. But when you look for protection against any lesions due to any type of HPV, look at those numbers. They start plummeting because there are other HPV types besides 6 and 11, about 10% of genital warts are due to non-6, and about 30% of neoplastic lesions are not due to 16 and 18. So what the epidemiologists are now talking about is we're going to vaccinate a lot of people, and I think that's good. I paid, my daughters are vaccinated. They haven't been neutered or spayed, but they've been so. You know, we're going to vaccinate, whoops, a lot of people, but what's going to happen is we'll protect people from the types of HPV in the vaccine, and the other ones that used to not be so prevalent in society will take over. So there is work being done on a polyvalent vaccine where we'll have multiple types of HPV, all the types that can cause neoplastic lesions, and that'll be the new, but that's a ways away. So just because there's a vaccine, don't, don't think we're not going to see genital warts and we're not going to see in situ squamous cell carcinomas on the genital skin. It isn't going to go away because the vaccine's not 100% effective. It is also approved for men who have sex with men, receptive anal intercourse to prevent anal cancer. So a gay male who's 24 years old who hasn't been vaccinated should be vaccinated.
Warts from hell. I'm going to give you just regular warts. I'm going to give you two alternatives. So you can use 5-FU and salicylic acid. You can use them together, or you can use the sal acid to thin out the wart and then use the 5-FU to kind of treat it. There have been a couple of studies done with pretty reasonable clearance. Pretty reasonable. There is a commercial product. You can Google it. It's called Wart Peel. 5% 5-FU and 17% salicylic acid in a compatible, so they don't eat each other apart, base that's already ready to use. It requires a prescription, and you have to send it to this very special compounding pharmacy. I have no interest in them at all. Wart peel, so it's already ready, or you can use the two products. But here's another interesting one, just published. Adapalene for Veruca plantaris. How many think you can cure 100% of your plantar warts? Because I want to send them all to you. I mean, it's hard, right? These are, sometimes you get lucky, you pair it, you freeze it, you shoot it with some bleomycin, you do something, it goes away, and you're a hero. And then the next plantar wart, it's five months later, and the thing's laughing at you. So this is another option, and it's a simple one. You pair the thing down, and you take, now they used adapalene 0.1. I've modified it, I use 0.3, but you could use 0.1 or 0.3, put on at night, occluded with saran wrap or tightly applied Band-Aid or a Band-Aid and a Band-Aid to hold the first Band-Aid in place. Do it every single day. And in this study, it was 10 adults, 118 plantar warts among those 10 adults, so about 10 per person. Every wart cleared in yeah. about six weeks. I, I, nothing's 100% with warts of any kind, uh, so there'll be failures. But this gives you a nice, non-toxic, recently reported, updated way to think about plantar warts in a way that you're not going to leave a permanently painful scar. Because remember, if you cut or you burn or you laser on the bottom of the foot, you can end up with a really bad scar that hurts. So this is a nice way to try it. I've done it a couple of times with a .3, and I'm two for two, <laughs> my big series. But here you go. Try it. Shingles. Shingles hurts. Shingles can keep hurting, post-herpetic neuralgia. Defined as 90 days after you made the diagnosis of shingles, they still hurt. That's post-herpetic neuralgia. Who's going to get it? Older patients and patients who are in greater pain at first diagnosis. So on an analog scale of 10, you know, zero, happy, 10, tears, four or above. Bad pain, older patients are more likely to get this. And once they have post-herpetic neuralgia, you know, sometimes you get lucky and, and amitriptyline or something like it works or gabapent works, and then sometimes it's just no matter what you do, they're in pain unless you ablate the nerve and then they're numbing, they're numb forever, which isn't a very pleasant sensation either. How often do you see post-herpetic neuralgia? In the literature, it's anywhere from 9 to 73% of patients with shingles. You know, what's generally accepted is 15 to 20%-ish. I mean, that's who gets post-herpetic neuralgia. But it's a bad thing to have. So two points on this. Recently published, and I think it's been talked about a lot, but I just want to highlight it for you. If you give gabapentin at the time the patient is diagnosed, they come in, they have blisters, oh, you have shingles. Here's your acyclovir, valacyclovir, famcyclovir, Probably doesn't matter, although the study was done with valacyclovir. I don't really think that matters. But at the same time, you say, and I'm going to start you on this drug 
that helps reduce inflammation in the nerves. And they started out at 100 milligrams three times a day, 300 milligrams a day. And if the patient was still having pain titrated up to, the maximum dose they gave was 3,600 milligrams. That's a lot. That put an elephant down, but not too many people got that. So most of them maxed out at 900 to 1,200 milligrams a day for four weeks. If they still had pain at four weeks, they got an extra four weeks of gabapentin. Nobody got, nobody got gabapentin after week nine. The eighth to ninth week, they kind of tapered off. So it's four weeks to eight weeks of active therapy, started at the time of initial diagnosis, and their post-herpetic neuralgia rate at 24 weeks was only 6.8%. That's very low. The study's been criticized because there was no control group. It's, it's not blinded. Everybody got antiviral and everybody got gabapentin. But that number is pretty impressive. So it's something to think about. I wouldn't hesitate to do it in that 68-year-old you see who's in extraordinary pain when they first walk into your office. This is something that might help them not get post-herpetic neuralgia. Now let's say they've got it. I think this is fascinating, and I've done this now, oh my gosh, probably five or six times, and it actually worked. I was totally shocked. It's called cryoanalgesia. And basically they took a cryac, and they stuck a 14-gauge intercath on it. But I think you can use the spray that has a bigger opening would be equivalent. And in the dermatome that hurt in this group of patients, 47 patients, older patients, so the ones you'd expect to get post-herpetic neuralgia, mostly on the head and neck or on the chest, thoracic dermatomes, what they did is in a circular motion along the dermatome that was affected, and then back down the dermatome, so twice. And all that takes about 30 seconds for most dermatomes. And then, how are you doing? And they, they were 15 centimeters, so they're six inches away from the skin surface with the cryac. So you're not freezing the skin. You don't get blisters. You're just making it sort of really cold. That's it. How are you doing? You still have pain in a week? We'll do it again. And it turns out that 80% of them required six or fewer sessions, and over a third of them, only two sessions, and their pain ceased. 75% of the patients had excellent pain decrease. A few didn't. If you have to go past six sessions, the likelihood of it being effective, it isn't that it won't work, but the likelihood drops rather dramatically. So once a week for up to six weeks, and even one or two times, right along the dermatome, then back down the dermatome, and this is what they use, but I think we could use the bigger hole. I can't ever remember if it's A, B, C, or D, which one's the big one, what's the small one, but the bigger hole. So you get kind of a, a diffuse cone spray up the dermatome, down the dermatome, once a week. A way to take care of post-herpetic neuralgia without pills. Try it. I think it actually helps. Genital herpes, just a couple quick points. This is not in our literature, and I think we need to know it. This is an Army study, and without going into all the details, when you go in the military, you get your blood drawn, and they keep drawing your blood, and they keep it frozen, and they got blood the whole time you're there so they can go look at stuff. And what they did was they were trying to find something that predisposes to prostate cancer. 
Since the prostate is in the genitourinary system, they were thinking, how about STDs? And it turns out that early acquisition of genital herpes, early acquisition predisposes to prostate cancer. So somebody who's getting, they, they develop their herpes at 22, probably ought to kind of go see the urologist at 30 instead of at 60. They may need PSAs a little earlier and a urologic exam a little earlier. What's important for us to realize is that early acquisition of genital herpes does predispose factor of two to prostate cancer. And it was a very well done military study. Very well done. <sighs> Vaccine, eight years, 8,000 patients, didn't work. No vaccine. Bed bugs, ah, love bed bugs. So there's a bed bug. It's about five millimeters. Cymex lectularis is the most common bed bug. They disappeared for a long time because there was a lot of DDT used in society. And DDT lasted for a long time, killed bugs. This is, these are some ads. I love that first one. My mom used to do that. She'd clean all the dishes out. She gets this little spray gun. And that ad, DDT for control of household pets, is from the US Department of Agriculture and the US Public Health Service. Look at the next one. This is wallpaper you put in your kid's room that's impregnated with DDT. It's a neurotoxin. This is, I love this one. That's a, an Eastern Airlines flight attendant spraying DDT in the cabin. And flea powder had DDT. I mean, there was DDT everywhere. There were no bed bugs. Then we stopped using DDT and there were bed bugs. These are the most buggy cities according to Orkin, Terminex, and CBS. I want to point out one thing. I am a University of Michigan alumnus. You don't see Ann Arbor on this list, but on everybody's list, you see Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> Ohio State. This is bedbugregistry.com. These are people reporting their own bedbug infestations or where they stayed in a hotel that there were bedbugs. So you gotta, you know, it's self-reporting. Who knows how accurate it is? But you can see there are clusters of, there's me, there are clusters of bed bug infestations. Where do you look? Within three feet of the bed. Particularly the headboard, the mattress, and the bed frame. But it can be in the nightstand drawer, can be under peeling paint, can be, they like right angles. They like to squish in those little right angles. So they're pretty small, you know, compared to a penny. These are hard to see. There's some in the mattress. There are some on, this is the bed frame, so the bed would sit on top of this. You see the little bugs and some of the casings that they shed as they go through molts and, and go through several larval stages. Under peeling paint, your patient says, I think I have bed bugs. Okay, if they're rich, tell them to go order a night watch. This thing secretes heated CO2, so it simulates us breathing, and it has a pheromone pack and the little bed bugs, oh, there's a human there. And then they crawl up here and they fall into this little well and they can't get out. And that way they can verify, your patient can verify whether they have bed bugs. Or you can tell them to hire a bed bug sniffing dog. <laughs> all of those except the smallest picture to the far left, those are all my patients who brought in their bed bugs. So verified bed bugs. They're bites, they tend to come in clusters, right? Breakfast, lunch, dinner, bedtime snack, three or four in a row. To date, there have been no major transmission of diseases from bed bugs. But that's Cymex lectularis. Cymex hemipterus 
The tropical bed bug is in much smaller numbers, mostly in Florida. Tonight, when you go back to your room, <laughs> open your drawer, look under the mattress, that one can carry hepatitis A, B, and C, and it's now interbreeding with cymexectellaris. So we might end up having hepatitis carried by the common bed bug. What do you do? You give them smeroids, and then what they do is they clean the environment, either suction or steam. Small objects can be frozen for a few days. There are pesticides, but they've already developed, the bed bugs have already developed resistance. You can put down things that desiccate. They get on the bug and they desiccate them. All the water goes out of them. They shrivel up and die. But the really best way is called thermal remediation. Companies come in, they put these heavy heating units in with fans to disperse the heat. It gets really hot, so you have to take out crayons, candles, and pets, or they will be bye-bye. And it kills the bugs, not only the adults, but also in the eggs, thermal remediation. Another way to do thermal remediation is this. <laughs> Onychomycosis. What's the best way to diagnose it? Send a piece of nail to the pathologist and have them do a PAS stain. It's more sensitive than anything else we can do except for PCR, which is not routinely available. That's the best way to diagnose onychomycosis. This is a new antifungal that'll be on your shelf soon. It's 2% instead of 1% naphtaphene, and it works very well. And why is it good? Because it works in half the time that the 1% naphtaphene works. Two weeks of therapy for tinea curis and tinea pedis, which go along with onychomycosis. If you see tinea curis, always look at their toenails. If you see tinea pedis, their toenails are right there. Look at them, because frequently that's the reservoir. About an 88% concurrence. So you can slap on something to treat their groin and their feet, that's fine, but you may have to treat their nails. Which leads me to lasers for nails. The only one that has FDA, quote, approval is the pinpoint foot laser, but there are several others. They all work in the same sort of infrared spectrum. And here are some examples of befores and afters. Okay, it's better, but it's not really gone, gone. I think we're still struggling with the laser that works. And notice the FDA's approval. Temporary improvement in the cosmetic appearance of onychomycosis. Nobody knows the right dose. Nobody knows how many treatments to give. It's expensive. I think it'll eventually work, but right now, it's kind of on the edge. Okay, we'll close with a few real interesting things. Chagas disease, ah, gosh, I diagnose that every day. It's coming to the US. Swollen eye, bite sight, big colon, big esophagus, big heart death. So it's it's transmitted by cone-nosed bugs, rejuviads, um, assassin bugs, sometimes they're called, common in the south. And in several studies, looking for the organism by PCR in the known insect vector, one study in New Orleans, one study in Tucson, lo and behold, the vectors have the organism by PCR. There have only been a handful of actual native cases of Chagas disease, but if the bug's infected in Tucson, somebody's gonna get it sooner or later. Stay tuned. But wait, there's more. Leishmaniasis in Texas and dengue fever in Florida. So if you're not really caught up with your tropical diseases, 
and somebody comes in with something a little weird, like, I don't know what that is, I've never seen anything like that before, think about odd tropical diseases, they're coming. Myiasis, this is the bot fly. The fly actually pastes its larva on the undersurface of a mosquito that deposited on the skin when it feeds, and then it burrows into the skin so it can mature. That's the Dermatobia hominis, the bot fly larva. And it looks like a furuncle, except it's moving a little bit. And its little breathing spiracles are sticking out there. Not uncommon in the south, and somewhat in the west as well. So the typical therapy for this is to occlude it. The, most papers and textbooks say, like, get some bacon fat. OK, I don't know about you, but <laughs> slap some bacon fat on you, man, and go away. So I got an even better one for you. Tell them to go get some Chimo. This is thick nicotine paste available in any pharmacy that caters at all to any Latin Hispanic population. What happens is it's so thick it occludes their breathing spiracles, they can't breathe, so they start getting asphyxiated, and the nicotine in the paste makes them go crazy. So they just shimmy right out of there in a few minutes. It's incredibly good. So myiasis, bot fly, you know, a little chemo goes a long way. Head lice, there's the louse, there are the nits. That picture to the bottom right, my oldest daughter the one I didn't show the pictures of. <laughs> Stem cell researcher with head lice. That's an interesting thing. So there are two new therapies. You probably have heard of them. I just want to make sure you're aware. One is Ulefsia. It's benzyl alcohol and mineral oil, so it's pretty safe. What happens is the benzyl alcohol paralyzes the louse with its mouth open, and then the mineral oil pours in there, and it suffocates to death. Now, if you're a PETA member, you might object to that. You know, the poor head louse is suffocating. The other thing is Natroba. It's got the benzyl alcohol, so it paralyzes the little mouth open, and then Spinosad, which is an insecticide, which goes right into the mouth, and that gives them seizures and they die. With fairly good cure rates, uh, but they're expensive. The Ulefsi is basically based upon the use of Cetaphil, you know, something thick that dries and asphyxiates them, except this is a sort of guaranteed because they're frozen in that open position. Uh, the dose is based on the length of hair. You've got to read the package insert. But there are these new therapies for head lice, for what it's worth. Okay, here's the bonus. Bad news. <sighs> Dr. Wallace mentioned, it was in his slide, but he didn't actually mention it, so I'm going to mention it. Listeria and Legionella associated with TNF-alpha blockers, small numbers of patients, Mostly RA patients. Why? Because they're older, sicker, and on more drugs. They're frequently on methotrexate, on steroids, plus their TNF blocker. Whereas we tend to use the TNF blockers, oh, we may use some light, we may use some steroids topically, but we don't tend to have them on multiple drugs systemically. Both of these may present as a gastrointestinal distress to start with. Legionella goes on to have pneumonia, Legionnaire's disease and listeria goes on to affect the brain and can cause septicemia. My point in mentioning these two specifically, you have someone on a TNF-alpha blocker, any of them, and they call up and they say, I'm having nausea, I've had some diarrhea, I vomited a few times, off to the primary care doctor. Because if it's one of these, they can die. Enough said. 
Um, Dr. Wallace did a good job on TB, so I'm not going to belabor the point. Just to remind you, you do need to test for TB every year, even if you're in a location. Houston is a hotbed for TB, but even if you're in a location where TB isn't very prevalent, your patients go to places where TB exists, or they have relatives who visit them from places where TB exists. People can get exposed, so you really need to retest every single year. Oh, there is one thing he didn't mention. The quantiferon gold, the interferon-based test, blood test, instead of a PPD, there's one Achilles heel, and it's our disease. It can be falsely positive if they've ever had swimming pool or fish tank granuloma, Mycobacterium marinum. It's the only thing. If they've had BCG, it won't be positive, but that one little thing can give you a false positive. Okay, last few things. Your patients can get antibiotics without you even knowing it. This was an internet search, and look at that, 138 sites selling antibiotics, 50 of those sites, you didn't even need a prescription. You just said, yeah, send me some doxycycline. They'll do it. The other ones, the patient fills out their own prescription by filling out a history. That's real accurate. So if you think, I, this has happened to me a couple of times. Usually it's they get it from their friend or their neighbor or their coworker, right? Somebody has some, oh yeah, you need some of my pills, I'll give you some left over. But your, your patients can go on the internet and get antibiotics. They come in with a rash that looks like, you know, an ampicillin rash. Or, and they say, you didn't give them that. You say, well, did your primary doctor give you any antibiotics for anything? No, I didn't give you any. Did, did you take any? Um, hmm. Google, Yahoo, they can get antibiotics without you even knowing it, or any healthcare provider knowing it. I thought that was pretty interesting. And last but not least, there's us. That's me, one of my favorite patients. They took white coats, and they looked at the sleeve ends, the abdomen, and the pockets. 60% of white coats these are doctors. They did it for nurses, too, and it was a little lower, but it, it still was present. A whole bunch had pathogenic bacteria, and six had multi-resistant, multi-drug-resistant bacteria. So the recommendation is, you know, if you're going to be touching someone with pus, put an apron on or something to put between you and your white coat. Change your white coat frequently, if not daily, because you can be carrying organisms. You, us, me. So I want to thank you. And I just want to point a couple last things out. I'm done. If and when the rules, forms, risks, CME requirements, paperwork, and headaches get so bad, I suggest you have Plan B ready. So I found, my name is Ted Rosen, I found a shop I can buy in Germany, and I'm all ready. And if you have any questions that you think of later, this is me on Halloween in the office. I see patients looking like that. They book a year in advance just to come in on Halloween if it's a work day. <laughs> All day, I have the cape, I have the vest, the blood, the white face, the black eyes. It's a little difficult, so after we apply the makeup, you know, it kind of wears off, but um, everybody loves it. Aren't we in a wonderful specialty? Aren't we? We should enjoy ourselves. Thank you very much for your kind attention. And, and my email is up there. If you have any questions that, you know, just email me. I'm happy. Do I have time for a few questions, maybe? Or one or two?
Can, can you address um, the T-spot test um, for TB, and do you use it, do you not use it? How does it compare to quantifuron? Okay, I, only, I use a PPD. The only time I do anything other than a PPD is if the PPD is equivocal, because a PPD is $3 and a quarter, and everything else is $70 to $100. And there are, there are problems with every other kind of test. The PPD is standard. Done properly, it is somewhat technique dependent. Done properly, you look for five millimeters or more. If it's kind of, I don't know where the end is and it's equivocal, I do a quantifieron because it's the most sensitive and specific test other than the PPD. It's more sensitive, so it's just way more expensive. So PPD is my screen. I have a couple questions. Um, do you feel that the sub-antimicrobial dose of doxycycline, the 40 milligrams, is, if that's not available as a generic and you give them 50 milligrams, do you feel like there's a big difference there? Yes, there is a difference. Because your blood level, you get at 50 milligrams a day. And I don't care how you slice the 40. If you use the brand name that's partially immediate, partially delayed, 30, 10, or you use two generic 20 milligram doxycyclines, any way you slice it, you can't get at a blood level that sorts out resistant strains. As soon as you hit 50, you will get a, a blood level that will be sufficient to start sorting out resistant, making them survive preferentially. Mm -hmm. So yes, I think okay. even between that, even that 10 milligrams makes a difference. Okay. But very few people give 50 milligrams. Most people, when they give doxy for yeah, acne or rosacea, they're given 100 yeah. or 200. So, but 40 is safe. Any way you get to 40, okay. it's safer. Good. Um, and do you think it's worse to stop and start antibiotics? Because uh, parents you, always call for refills. Yes. The, the answer to the question, is it worse to start and stop? That is the most efficient way to develop resistance. It is the worst way. If you're going to do it, do the antibiotics continuously for a circumscribed amount of time. Don't start, stop, start, stop. It's the best way to have problems. Okay. Um, as far as um, cellulitis goes, if somebody comes in with an abscess and it's, um, you IND it, you get a lot of material out and do a bacterial culture, um, which antibiotic, if you don't know if it's going to be methicillin-sensitive staph or resistant staph, do you always put them on antibiotics if you feel like you really did a good IND? If, if you've gotten a good IND and there isn't about five centimeters crosswise to crosswise, longest length of erythema around it, you're probably okay just doing your IND. Packing is considered passe now. You don't put a foreign material in there. But, you know, I know it's happened to you. You open it up, you get some pus, and it still kind of feels and looks ratty. Antibiotics. If the longest dimension from start to, here's your boil-looking thing, but the red extends, and this is five centimeters or more, Antibiotics. Okay. Very young people, very old people, anybody on an immunosuppressive or who is immunocompromised, cancer patient, etc. Right. Antibiotics. So if you're waiting five days for the culture to come back and you don't know if it's doxycycline. Or not, doxycycline. Okay. That's my go-to drug because it's the least toxic. You're least likely to get in trouble. And nationwide, you're looking at 10 to 12 percent resistance. Look at it the other way: 88 to 90 percent MRSA sensitive, and MSSA will all be sensitive. Pretty much. So that's my go-to drug. What are you doing for uh, nasal staph now? For nasal staph? If people are carriers, nasal carriage of staph. Yeah. So I'll try mupiracin. I mean, that's what I'll do for a couple of months. 
If that doesn't get it and they're still carrying or they're still getting symptomatic things, I use Altabax or Tapamulin, just like I would use Mupiracin, same sort of regimen. And if that doesn't do it and they're still carrying and somebody in the family or them is still having you know, some sort of symptomatic thing, um, then I'll see what their, what their sensitivity is and I'll give them a course of oral antibiotics that's appropriate for their sensitivity. And those people who keep carrying often have a lot of things that their, drug, their bug is no longer sensitive to. So you may end up with something that's suboptimal, like the only thing that works is linazolid. So you go by the sensitivity. The other thing is remember outside sources. People that they come in close personal contact with, pets that they come in contact with, if they're recolonized, even if it's their nose, over and over and over again, you've got to think about it's coming from something other than just them and their bug. It's the most important thing. And they have to be careful. I had one guy that until he threw away, he had one of those nasal things that spins around and zzz, got his nasal hair. Until he threw that away, I couldn't get him clear and he kept getting boils, but he was reinfecting himself. And I kept asking him, do you change your towels? Do you shower every, yes, yes, yes. And he'd done everything. I didn't ask about a nasal clipper. You know, you can't ask about everything. Do you ever use prednisone? Back when I trained in the late 80s, we used prednisone for uh, post-traumatic neuralgia prevention. If they were over age 60 when we started okay, their treatment. I, I, there's so much echo in here. Do I ever use what for post-traumatic neuralgia? Prednisone. Prednisone. When you institute their... Okay. So I have tried it. There's actually a very big study. It was done in the VA that shows you can't prevent it with, with prednisone. I've tried it. I don't particularly think it's the best thing. I reserve it, and I don't use, if I'm going to use steroids, I don't use prednisone. I use injectable triamcinolone. I give them 40 to 60 milligrams, depending on their size, once a month for three shots. But, you know, that's a dangerous drug. So I prefer to try all the neuroleptic drugs first. You know, I'll try amitriptyline, I'll try gabapentin. Pregabalin probably isn't quite as good, but I'll go through at least a couple of those, and if they're still in agony, I'll try a couple of shots of, of, of TAC. If that doesn't work, mm, you know, there's all kinds of things, TENS units and, and phenol ablation of the nerve ending, I mean, you, then you get complicated. But how about a little cryo, cryoanalgesia? Yes. Thank you. Yes, um, your study you talked about, about the recurrent HSV and using amiquimod, can you also treat with Valtrex at the same time, or does that affect how the amiquimod is going to help? It's probably not, I don't know, because that's not how the study was done, right? But it's probably not a good idea okay. because you want the antigen there. And as soon as you start killing the bugs off with the antiviral, you're probably not going to soup up the immune system in a specific way. So if you're going to try that, just let them suffer through one episode. And it turns out that while they were being treated, actually the episodes did better. So it's okay, but you probably shouldn't be concomitantly treating them with antiviral. I think it would defeat the purpose. Thank you. I have a question on the same study. 62.5 milligrams, is that five packets? Am That's I doing the math right? five packets. Okay, so the insurance companies a lot of time will only cover the 24 packets in a 30-day period, and it's nightly for three weeks? That's why samples exist. Okay, so, but we get samples of Zyclera. Have you, or have you tried it yet? No. Haven't tried So we Zyclera. don't know if the 3.75 will have the same effect. Don't know if it will work. Okay. But you can get, you have Zyclera samples. Try it. 
Also, um, I've seen some research suggesting that the antibiotics we use in livestock that we then eat may contribute to some of this antibiotic resistance that we're seeing. Are you, have you seen any research correlating that? Seventy percent of all antibiotic use in the United States is either given to livestock or sprayed on apples and pears. There was, I'll just give you the very brief study. There was a great study. It was done in Iowa. They went to a grocery store and they took stuff off the shelf. You can trace beef. You know where it's grown. It's stamped with USDA numbers. And they compared beef that had been raised with grain in which antibiotics were routinely put as prophylaxis, not to treat disease, mm -hmm. compared to beef that was grown without antibiotics. And in the beef that was grown with antibiotics, there were drug-resistant enterococci. There were none in the beef not grown with antibiotics. There's also a study that's been done in poultry that shows the same thing. Poultry, chickens mostly, and turkeys less, are given Virginia mycin. It's not a human antibiotic. But it's structurally very similar to one of the IV anti-MRSA drugs. And those chickens harbor bugs that are resistant to that MRSA drug structurally similar. So let's say you eat that chicken, it's not totally cooked completely, you get those bacteria in your gut, you are now colonized in your gut with potentially antibiotic resistant who can, bugs who can spread that. So, so my rancher's yes, not lying about all that. Yes, there okay. is. And Good I'll just tell you one more thing. There's actually um, Protection of Antibiotic Medication Therapeutics Act. It's been brought up before Congress under both Republican and Democratic Congresses. And it was to limit the use of antibiotics in, food, in the food chain for, for routine, giving it to poultry and giving it to beef, spraying it on pears, spraying it on apples, just as routine. And it failed because the lobbyists for the antibiotic makers, the bulk antibiotic makers, not the drug companies we deal with, but the bulk antibiotic, were powerful enough that they blocked it regardless of who controlled Congress. A shame, I think. Okay, I, I gotta run because I gotta go catch a plane. So thank you. Email me.